Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Jess Del Fiaco, the Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and I'm with John Farrell, co-director of our organization and director of our Energy Democracy Initiative. John, what are you here to talk about today? Well, I'm hoping to share a little bit about the Community Power Scorecard. It's a recently released tool from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance from our Energy Democracy Initiative focused on giving states a grade to help summarize perspective on how their energy programs work to enable more clean energy. Okay, so each state got a grade. So which ones are the stars of the class who got A's and then uh, who needs a little extra help to make some progress to improve their failing grade? So actually, there's only two states, uh, Massachusetts and New York, that got an A grade on our 2020 scorecard. We've been doing this scorecard for uh, several years now. And this is actually the fewest number of A's that we've ever had. Uh, We do change the methodology a little bit every year to try to account for which states are really doing well and and which aren't. Um, There's about 10 states that get an A or a B, so that are doing pretty well overall. But there are an awful lot of states that are doing either mediocre or really poorly, unfortunately. And why is that? What are some of the policies that uh, we give failing grades or lack of policies? Yeah, so the, the most important policies that get states a high score are ones that give communities and cities a lot of flexibility in how they plan for their energy future. So one of the primary ones, for example, is called community choice energy. It's something we actually just released a big report about where we explore how it allows communities to go a lot further and a lot faster towards renewable energy. So instead of, for example, relying on a private utility company, community choice energy allows a city to, on behalf of its residential and small commercial customers, uh, choose where the electricity supply comes from. So they can say, oh, we want to get it from solar, we want to get it from wind, we want to get it from local sources versus faraway sources. And so we score very highly for that. States that um, have that policy can get seven points out of a total of around 35 to 30 to 40 points. So it's a big chunk of the score. Other things that we focus on are things like shared or community renewable energy. So policies that allow people uh, to finance renewable energy projects through property taxes, uh, or just to have policies that make it easier for individuals to put solar on their own rooftop. So how is our scorecard different from other clean energy report cards that other organizations might put out? I think the biggest distinguishing factor is that we're not as focused on some total of carbon reductions or renewable energy percentage in terms of what state policy accomplishes. We're really focused on the way that state policy is enabling cities to do more. So, you know, you see that in, for example, we give high scores to states like Massachusetts and New York, which would probably score high on other state scorecards because they also have ambitious uh, overall state policy goals on clean energy. But we also give high scores to states like Illinois, New Hampshire, Ohio. Ohio, for example, recently repealed its entire clean energy state standards and passed policy to subsidize nuclear and coal plants. Uh, Those are obviously very bad policies, and we disagree with them strongly. But Ohio scores well on our scorecard because it still allows communities to make their own choices. So even though the state is going to do some really bad things around energy policy as a state, it still allows communities to do really interesting things. And we have a podcast interview, for example, with some folks from Athens, Ohio. Uh, In that community, because they have access to community choice energy in Ohio, uh, which is one reason that state scores better, they're able to not only choose where their energy supply comes from writ large, but they've been able to... Uh, raise funds specifically to put clean energy on public buildings by adding a fee onto the bills there. It was uh, it was something they could determine locally and something that you're not allowed to do in a lot of other states. So that's kind of the big distinguishing feature is that rather than focusing on what's the big 
you know, flagship energy policy with some kind of number about clean energy. Uh, instead, how did the state policies allow for cities and communities to make more of those choices themselves and often to go much further than some of the most ambitious state policies? So kind of going off that a little bit, there are those states that have 100 percent clean energy laws like Virginia and New Mexico, and we didn't give them great grades. So it's just because they don't have that that kind of community empowerment that we're looking for. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it's important to talk a little bit about what in those policies is problematic as well. So Virginia was just in the news in early March because it passed its clean energy law. New Mexico was kind of a flagship one, got a lot of coverage in the fall of 2019. So both Virginia and New Mexico's laws are problematic for similar reasons. In those policies that set high 100% goals for a clean energy policy for the state, Uh, by some certain date, like 2045 or 2050. They also include a lot of handouts for the incumbent investor-owned private utility companies. Um, You know, these big utility corporations uh, have had monopolies for a long time, uh, guaranteed by the state. So customers there don't have a choice, generally speaking, about what utility provides energy to them. And the companies own everything from the meter on your house to the poles and wires running through your alley to the power plants. Uh, that generate the electricity. And New Mexico, for example, they had one of the biggest and dirtiest coal power plants in the entire country as part of the utilities portfolio. And the utility cut a deal as part of this clean energy program to be allowed to shut it down, but also to be allowed to recover 100% of the cost and to make a profit on the costs of shutting that plant down, even though they had been warned many times over the past decade that it was not economical to continue running it. The other thing that the New Mexico bill guarantees for the utility is that they get to own everything that replaces that coal power plant. And we are in this time frame when there's no reason that utilities have to own everything. Solar panels can be put on individual rooftops. Wind projects can be owned by farmers. We've actually featured a number of those kind of projects on our website, uh, either in stories or in podcast interviews uh, of community ownership. And so it's really disappointing with the New Mexico law focusing so much on rewarding utility shareholders for the clean energy transition rather than giving opportunities to uh, individuals, to tribal nations, to other folks to benefit from the clean energy transition. And Virginia is similar uh, in that law that just passed in early March. Dominion Energy, which has been very politically powerful in the state, uh, succeeded in negotiating to own 65% of the clean energy resources that are going to be built. Uh, I thought it was really interesting in one of the articles I saw about the the law, they were hailing that the number had gone down from 75% to 65%. But again, it is a guarantee that is unnecessary. Really what states should be focused on doing is setting clean energy targets and looking for the most economical way to do it. If you're just going to like put it out for bid or if you just want to like set a goal and, and, and do nothing else, you know, let the utility commission identify what's the most cost effective way or to set priorities for how you get there. And this is where a state like Massachusetts, which gets an A on our scorecard, is very different. They not only have ambitious long-term goals for clean energy, but in their policies, they specifically set out ways to encourage development of certain kinds of clean energy projects, projects that include energy storage, which will be very helpful for the grid, projects that allow low-income folks to get savings on their bills so that they help reduce the energy burdens for low-income folks. Projects on brownfields, so you know, taking distressed, polluted properties and putting solar on them. Uh, and so they're much more focused on the general public benefit from clean energy rather than just hitting this one big number 20 to 25 years from now and letting the utility shareholders rake in the profits of getting to that point. So, John, are there any states that are kind of 
on the verge of getting a passing grade that we we could see in the near future have policies that would bump them up a little bit in our scorecard? Uh, There are a few states, I think, that I would highlight as being kind of on the verge. Um, So Virginia is one. They actually do have now a community choice energy law that was recently passed. Uh, It's going to be really interesting to see if they're able to implement it. Virginia actually is a lot like California. We talk about this in our community choice energy report in that the the state used to have retail competition, which means that individuals could choose who they bought their electricity from. And then after the big Enron debacle 20 years ago, when Enron was manipulating markets and causing uh, an electricity crisis in California, a lot of states walked back from competition. And Virginia and California are, are both among them. And what happened in California, where community choice energy has really flourished, is that there was an enormous and painful fight to get the policy enacted because the utilities had become monopolies again, and they didn't want to share the market with communities making choices to about where they got their energy supply. And so they poured a lot of money into lobbying, uh, into ballot initiatives, that kind of thing to stop community choice from growing. So Virginia is a state where uh, we have some opportunities coming up because if community choice energy can be successful, if communities can make those choices, then they can help change that big number that we just talked about in the 100% clean energy policy about utility ownership because the communities will be able to choose where the energy comes from. And so the utility can own 65% of nothing if all the communities in Virginia decide to go buy their power wherever they want to get it. Um, I'm sure it won't play out that way. I'm sure the utility is still going to own some stuff. And in the end, that's fine. It's not that we don't want utilities to own anything. It's just that we don't think we should be giving them guarantees. So I see Virginia as a state that actually is kind of an up-and-comer here with community choice energy. The legislature there is very focused, uh, is increasingly skeptical of utility ownership. I think they may also pass like a community renewable energy policy, and we may see other things then, uh, other ways in which they increase their score on our scorecard. Colorado is another state. In fact, I I think they've always been sort of, uh, in some ways, evaluated lower on our scorecard overall than than I hold them in my heart in the sense that they were one of the first states uh, to have a community solar program and to really launch that concept uh, across the country. Uh, the problem that they face, uh, along with a state like Minnesota, uh, where I'm based, is that both states have really good, uh, have gotten a really good start on things like community renewable energy, but because they're both states in which utilities have monopolies, they don't give a lot of flexibility to communities to make more choices. And in Colorado, famously, the city of Boulder has been involved for 10 years now in trying to take over its electricity system from the incumbent utility to have more local choice, to be able to focus more on local economic de- development and other benefits from clean energy. So I think there are some states like that where they've already shown some flexibility and interest in in how they do this. Um, Oregon is another state. They recently finally finished the rulemaking after almost four years for a community renewable energy program. When that launches and pr- projects start getting built, their score could rise. Um, so we have a lot of uh, states like that right now that have had a mix of policies, but I think are on the verge of uh, of shooting up in the rankings. Uh, so I'm curious, do we see any regional trends with these high scores? Are, are, do states look to their, their neighbors uh, to see how they could be successful in terms of democratic energy distribution? Well, we do actually uh, every year try to provide some regional comparisons because I think it is a really important question to ask in the sense that states, when they think about the policies that they enact, they tend to compare themselves to their neighbors. Uh, we run into this in a place in, you know, where we're from in Minnesota all the time, where lawmakers here will say, well, if California did it, that's a reason almost for us not to consider it because it will be sort of politically polarizing. But if Illinois has passed a policy like this or Ohio or Wisconsin, well, now that's something that we can think about. Uh, so what we have found is that there are definitely regional differences. Uh, northeastern states, the New England region, for example, 
every state in the New England region, uh, where uh, and you can see this in a post that we have uh, linked to from the Community Power Scorecard, uh, gets a C grade or higher. And so that entire area is pretty strong. We have the Mid-Atlantic region. It's New Jersey, uh, New York, Pennsylvania. Uh, New York is, gets an A grade, for example, and New Jersey gets a B. So there are some definite leaders in that area. Uh, on the Pacific region in the, in the West, California and Oregon both get a C grade or better. We unfortunately still have some laggards, though, Alaska, Hawaii, and Washington. Um, but what, we've, what we have found is that in almost every region, we have at least one state that stands out. Some regions that are not so great in our analysis, uh, the Southeast is particularly bad. Every state down there um, gets a, a, a D or an F. Unfortunately, same for the sort of west, south, central. We use, we use census uh, districts, which are named really weird. So you have all of these like dual direction areas. But uh, this is Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana. Again, all Ds or Fs. And the west, north, central, which is kind of like the upper Midwest. Uh, both of these regions, uh, the C grade is the highest one that you see. So um, you've got uh, some really good leaders in kind of the eastern side of the Midwest, Illinois, Ohio, out on the West Coast and on the East Coast, but in a lot of the rest of the country, a real struggle to see policies that enable communities to do more. So besides this uh, energy scorecard, is there any other way that ILSR is tracking how communities can have more self-determination in the energy sector? Yeah, we actually have a couple different things that we've been doing recently on this theme. Uh, One is that we've been looking at, in particular, the spread of interest in public power. Uh, sometimes called municipalization. And this is, you know, there are over 2,000 cities in the United States that already have city-owned utility companies. It's a very common way to uh, deliver electricity. And in fact, back 100 years ago when the electricity system was actually getting set up, there was a lot of contention between private companies and cities about delivering electricity services. It was kind of a wild west. And before things really settled down into the kind of regulatory framework we have now, Uh, there was a lot of fighting between cities and private companies. And the result is that you have, for example, some very large cities that still uh, and have for decades own their own utility, like Los Angeles, uh, Austin, Texas, um, or Sacramento, California, as well as hundreds of smaller cities. Uh, What we've found recently, though, is that there is a real interest in a lot of different places in the country in continuing to expand public power. So it's not very common that we see a switch between private and public utilities or from public to private utilities. But we've actually seen a really growing interest in recent years. So in in a way, this all got kicked off with Boulder, Colorado about a decade ago. And we've actually covered this a lot on our website. I definitely encourage folks to listen to a recent podcast episode we did on local energy rules with Jonathan Cohn from the city of Boulder. He talks not just about their motivation around clean energy, which was a really important catalyst for the move, but also about why it is that local control is really important to them. It's not just that they want to buy energy from wind and solar resources, but they want to build them in the community. They want to build them in a way that has more economic benefits for the community and that really reflects the community's values and that they can't do that unless they own the utility. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast. If you're enjoying this conversation, we hope you'll consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Not only does your support underwrite this podcast, but it also helps us produce all the resources and research we make available for free on our website. Please take a minute and go to ilsr.org donate to make a contribution. Any amount is welcome and sincerely appreciated. That's ilsr.org donate. Thank you so much. And now back to the show. And we're seeing that kind of interest in other ways, too. So I think there's been huge stories out of California around wildfires, the bankruptcy of Pacific Gas and Electric. 
Both the governor of California and the city of San Francisco have expressed an interest in buying out the utility, which ought to be really inexpensive since it's bankrupt. But it's a really interesting opportunity to talk about how public power might do things differently, because one of the reasons Pacific Gas and Electric finds itself bankrupt is that it basically went on the cheap when it came to basic maintenance spending for the grid, trimming trees and other things. Uh, that can hit or combust near power lines. Uh, obviously, the wildfires have been a big uh, problem for them. And so uh, so the state and the city have been looking at this issue of uh, municipalization uh, of a public power takeover. And what it means really is completely being able to change the perspective of the utility. It, in, in a way, it seems small because, for example, the threat of the wildfires isn't going to change. The poles and wires aren't going to change just because you change hands in terms of ownership. But instead of having shareholders that you're trying to serve and who have a very significant interest in earning a return on investment, you're just considering the public interest in the choices that you make for the utility. So you could really amp up, for example, maintenance spending, knowing that because there are no shareholders, you're going to care about reducing their dividend because you're doing that, that you'll have a long-term healthier grid system in California, one that is less subject to what they call now public safety power shutoffs, where they have to literally shut down the grid uh, in the in the face of these wildfires. So California is one of the places that uh, this is happening. All the way on the other coast in Maine, there's a couple of transmission companies that have gotten into real trouble, some enormous billing snafus where they charged something like 40,000 customers extra and then bungled doing the refunds, uh, as well as some issues uh, that the state had with them kind of overcharging for energy in general and a lot of public resistance to some expansion plans for the transmission companies. And now there's a bill in the state legislature to do a public takeover of those two things. And we're even seeing that among presidential candidates when they're talking about how to address climate change that will just like make everything public. I think it's important to point out that it's not being public or being private that necessarily makes a utility good. In fact, it's sometimes the transition between the two or the fact that one is really that you're really making an effort to hold one of them accountable that makes the difference. But public power obviously has a lot of advantages. You can borrow money at low interest rates. You have the public interest at heart instead of shareholders. And, and there are a lot of opportunities there. So there's a recent piece on our website that kind of goes into more detail of the places around the country that are looking at public power and, and what their motivations are and, and why it is that they're interested in it. And what's really striking in the past decade is that the movement toward public power is as much about self-reliance and self-determination as it is about clean energy. It's not. It's motivated by both, but, but we're seeing that uh, in, in a different ways. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment there. That you mentioned that this is a challenging process of public takeover of an existing utility. And seeing interest in so many different communities does, I think, speak to the strong belief in and desire people have for local control uh, for both of those reasons. So I don't know if you want to get into what those challenges are, just to kind of illustrate how, how worth it it is in people's minds to have local control over their energy. Yeah, there's actually a couple of good examples, I think, that are worth talking about. One is really recent. So in Chicago, Illinois, there is talk of taking over the utility system from Commonwealth Edison, which is under intense scrutiny for illegal lobbying activities, um, which really comes as no surprise in a state like Illinois, where there's unfortunately a really bad history of corruption. But uh, what's what's fascinating there is that uh, there's been some great coverage there by the public radio station, um, by and there's a story just out a couple of days ago uh, by Becky Vivi uh, with WBEZ. 
And the reason I mention this particular story is it highlights what I think is this um, inherent tension in every single fight for public power, which is the city can exercise eminent domain to just take the grid. That's, that's the power that it has. But then a court will determine what the fair price is. And the utility always starts with an opening bid that is ridiculously high. And in this case, Commonwealth Edison said if Chicago wants to buy the grid, it's going to cost $10 billion. And to be fair, like it is probably going to be in the billions. Like a city the size of Chicago, the kind of infrastructure, substations, whatever, the population, it's a lot of stuff that you have to buy. It's also really old. In fact, almost all the big cities that have grid systems, the equipment is older than any of the rest of the grid system. So it's depreciated a lot. I won't get into what depreciation means, but let's just say it's older. It's not worth as much. The other thing that's funny about it is they basically made up this number. So they said it was $10 billion. Uh, some local advocates kind of crunched their own numbers and said it's actually more like $2 billion or $1 billion. And they pointed out that if it actually was $10 billion, that it would be basically half the value of the entire company would be in 2% of its service area in the city of Chicago, which seems pretty crazy. And then when, she, when asked again, like, where did they come up with that number? They were like, well, we didn't really crunch the numbers. We didn't really do the math. We just know that it's going to be around 10 billion. And so this is the kind of bullshit, unfortunately, that utilities throw at cities that are looking at this takeover. And what we've seen in a lot of places is that the utility will open with a ridiculously high bid, probably five times the worth of the grid. The city will come back with something that's much more in the ballpark and the court will land somewhere in between and usually a lot closer to what the city thinks the value of the grid system is. But that court process takes a long time. So I mentioned Boulder, Colorado. They've been at this for nine years. They may finally have a vote next year on a referendum to finally condemn the grid and take it over from uh, Excel Energy. But it's been a really long and, and painful process. And unfortunately, state laws don't make it very easy for cities to municipalize. And that's why things like community choice energy can be so important. And, and why we talk about these kind of policies is because you don't have to take over the grid to get the important powers of choosing where the energy comes from. So instead of buying poles and wires and fighting with the utility over how many billions it's going to be, you simply get to choose where does the energy supply come from and let the utility run the grid system as it always has. Uh, and so it makes it a lot easier. And, and this is actually, you know, so the report that we recently released on Community Choice Energy helps explore some of the benefits that cities have in terms of the things that they can do. We actually divide up in kind of a novel way community choice programs into what we call modest programs and ambitious programs. And this is actually a rather new development in the past two to three years where previously this, this policy has been around for almost 20 or 30 years Previously, what we've seen is that communities that used community choice basically just went out on the market, used their buying power, kind of like Costco, to get a lower price for energy. They weren't terribly interested in renewable energy um, or anything else. They were just looking at how do we exercise our buying power. What we're seeing now, though, is that cities are using this in a lot of different and interesting ways. And one of those ways is a more equitable distribution of the financial and environmental benefits of renewable energy, correct? Yeah, what, we are actually seeing some real innovation when it comes to how cities think about how to use these powers that they have for energy supply. We actually have an entire section in the report that we released recently called California Exceptionalism. And it really gets into how, in particular in California, the cities and communities that are banding together to provide these choice programs are doing it in a way that have these significant benefits. So East Bay Community Energy, for example, has what they call a local development business plan. 
So they take the profits from their business uh, of selling electricity, which in the case of an investor-owned utility would go to shareholders on Wall Street, and they are investing those instead in local economic development, workforce training, uh, et cetera, specifically targeting communities of color and other frontline communities that have been subject to some of the worst pollution from the fossil fuel industry. And they are focused on making sure that those communities not only see clean energy development in their community as an alternative to the fossil fuel and polluting industries that have been there, but also making sure that the folks uh, in those communities have access to the jobs that are going to be created in order to provide that energy service. Um, we're also seeing that in uh, even in like non-urban areas. We uh, did a podcast interview with Matthew Marshall from the Redwood Coast Energy Authority. Uh, just published that recently. It's the 99th episode of Local Energy Rules. And what he talked about was they have a local forestry industry that's been struggling and that the utility company there or the, the choice program there can buy power from a biomass power plant that uses wood waste from the, the forestry industry. And by continuing to buy that power, even though it might be a little bit more expensive, it's a way that they can help maintain that local industry uh, in, a, in a case in which in normal circumstances, when it's a private utility company, the utility might simply say, this power is not economical. We don't want to buy it. But because it's a community owned utility, they can say, we're willing to pay a small premium here if it has additional economic benefits for the community, if it can help sustain this industry that's important to our community. So community choice energy isn't available everywhere, right? Uh, Where are we seeing it? Are we seeing more states make it possible for communities to do something like this? So right now there are nine states that allow for community choice energy. Um, That's actually up from six about five years ago. And so we are seeing more states explore this. Uh, The states that are new to the game are New York, Virginia, and New Hampshire. Uh, And that's on top of Ohio, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Illinois, California. We are seeing growth in that. And that's actually one of the things that we're highlighting. In Massachusetts, you have over 150 communities that have signed up in the past five years. In New York, um, over 50 cities, uh, mostly in the last year alone. In California, as much as half of the electricity sales to find ultimate customers are going to be flowing through community choice entities in the next few years. And so some really uh, stupendous growth in states that have both recently adopted and uh, have had these policies on the books for a long time. Great. Thanks, John. I just wanted to say for our listeners, we've referenced a lot of different pieces of research throughout this episode. So we will have all these reports and stories linked in the in the webpage for this episode. So you can go there and dive into all these different numbers that John's been rattling off. <laughs> John, is there anything else you wanted to talk about today? I just want to take a minute and make sure that folks had heard about the Frontline, PBS Frontline episode on Amazon Empire. So um, check this out. It's a um, it's about, I think, an hour and a half or two hours long uh, documentary. Uh, the research that went into it uh, took them like over a couple of years uh, to put this together. The Institute for Local Self-Reliance was intimately involved. Stacey Mitchell was a, a consultant on the project, is interviewed in the program. And it's really an incredibly revealing look at how Amazon has grown and how it works and really gets at this issue that I think is so important for people to understand about how Amazon doesn't just want to be a big player in the online marketplace, but it wants to be the online marketplace and how there's this inherent tension between being the platform on which people transact and buy things and being a competitor on that platform. And I just think the Frontline episode does such a good job of really giving you a picture. You, I mean, you've got 
um, they've got interviews directly with uh, the the frontline interviewers talking to Amazon executives, talking to former employees, um, talking to outside experts. And it's really just nice to hear in their own words what their perspective is on these different things, to hear from actual workers and what the experiences are. Um, I, ju- I just think it's a terrific look at um, a company that has had such an outsized impact on the U.S. economy. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by visiting ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on social media. Finally, you can help us out with a gift that helps support our work, including the production of this very podcast. You can also help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez, Zach Freed, and me, Jess Del Fiaco. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional.